0: Hey
1: and welcome back to the new season of Shade with me, Lou Mensah. This season, we will be reflecting on the power of the image within the civil rights movement. And my guests include founding members of Black Lives Matter, photographers and editors from publications such as Time magazine and ID, curators and art critics. And together, we will be reflecting on the imagery and the stories that came from the Black Lives Matter 2020 uprisings with the people who created them. And I want to say a big thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. I'm honoured to have you all involved in this show and supporting this work and elevating our stories. For as little as £1 a month, you can become a Shade patron and join others in supporting this work and elevating our stories. So go to patreon.com forward slash Shade podcast to become a patron. So here we go. Black, Images Matter, Episode 4, The image of protest. Support for Shade's Black Images Matter series comes from Chloris, creators of organic superior grade CBD formulations. I talk with the co founder Kim quite often about our holistic approach not only to health but also to our children's education. An education that nurtures an interest and investment in the world that we all share. And part of Cloris's investment is being a long-term partner of the charity Help Refugees. Cloris's co-founder, Pedram, has spent many years working with refugees as an interpreter. Kim said of our collaboration that it's crucial to support platforms that engage in important conversations surrounding race, as Shay does so brilliantly. So go to ChlorisCBD.com to find out more about the range and for information on help refugees. And sign up to support Shade through Patreon and you'll receive a Chloris subscriber gift. Okay, so here we go. Episode 4. In conversation with founding member of Black Lives Matter UK, Joshua Virasamy. And in part two, we're here from George Osai from the communications team at the Photographer's Gallery in London. Joshua talks about the bringing down of the Edward Colston statue in Bristol and what these moments signify throughout our wider civil rights history. We also discuss the challenges of being a public-facing member of the movement and he talks to the requests for visibility regarding the donations that came through following the protests. We also learn how to take our activism off social media into our everyday lives.
2: I agree. It is very important that we have representation of ourselves in the media. I remember my friend; he's a writer. He's actually just gotten to do a creative writing masters at Goldsmiths, and he was telling me that he he read a quote, but I think it was Gabriel Garcia Marquez that was like, "It is incredibly important as people of color that as soon as we can write, we create mirrors for our readers because we don't have a lot of mirrors growing up." And I definitely, I certainly didn't have a lot of mirrors growing up. It's quite. To be honest, it's it's quite difficult to think of like a time when I saw what I think is a proper representation of my life or my experiences on the TV or or anywhere really. I think maybe like music videos, yeah. you know, I saw like maybe groups of people, you know, like some rappers and some other musicians, like I saw groups of people that looked like my friendship groups and maybe in certain movies. There was little bits, but it was there was never like a proper, I can't be like, oh yeah, that TV show was definitely the strong representation of my life and my experience. Yeah,
1: yeah, same here. I That's mean cool.
2: yeah, I guess most media that had, you know, black and brown people in it, they tended to just in hindsight when I look back at it, I think they just tended to kind of recreate that that media spectacle of us, you know, just kind of crass stereotypes of who we are. Oh, like there's one kind of token person in each series you know like bradley and s club seven or you know those kind of things and because it's one person because it's one token it could never really do a fair representation of all all the diversity of our experiences right and i even think that sometimes when we tend to create ourselves we even do the same thing like we might there's an experience that doesn't get framed as much in the media so we put that one out and that one becomes the repeated you know like young black men and in a lot of tv series and a lot of things they're kind of in maybe involved with or around gang violence and around criminal activity and stuff like that. And that's true for a lot of young black men and a lot of the young black men that I grew up around. But it wasn't like all of us were all the time gang banging or on, on road like that. So, yeah. yeah, I feel like there wasn't really one, and that's quite sad, to be honest.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's why I asked that question, because I'm hoping that commissioners who are listening to this or people who hold the power in creating stories in whichever form hear this, because obviously this is a common thread.
2: I mean, it's re- what's really beautiful was that, is seeing the response to the Small Axe series. Oh my right?
1: God, I know. And
2: it's, it's, it's so beautiful. Like I'm getting shivers even thinking about it oh now. No, and it's, no, but no. it's like, in terms of an accurate representation of people's lives, that's, tw- that's, you know, that's 20 years too late, right? Yes. yeah. But it's beautiful that it's happening. And it's an accurate representation of our shared histories of migrant communities, but I mean, yeah, it's taken a long time, right? Like Stephen had to really become something of a you know legend in his field to be able to be commissioned, to do something like that for the BBC. And a lot of the celebration, the tone of the celebration is also a kind of shared mourning that has taken so long to get like a really accurate representation of our lives.
1: Mm, Yeah, absolutely But I guess
2: what I'm trying to say Is that it is happening as well You know, there's really amazing I'm part of a a group It's kind of like a network Called POC P-O-C-C
1: I know POC Yeah it's, It's founded by Kevin And Kevin was my Christmas guest last year Like, he's the Don Kevin's dope
2: Yeah, and Nana Nana's amazing and, you know, that community of people, that's a lot of people that are really making waves in, in the media industries and making sure that this stuff doesn't happen anymore, that we put our stories forward, that we're commissioning people, that we're not losing our talent to other countries because there's not enough work. You know, we're, And I'm really like proud of that community and seeing what it's doing. And it's a really strong intervention. And I think maybe what we're seeing is is a turning of the tides in terms of that kind of stuff. But still, you know, at the highest level of commissioning and, and, and various broadcasters, it's, it's still quite... You know, stale male and pale,
1: but this season we like we're talking about the power of the image, so moving on from the images that we saw growing up, um, I'm moving on to the images that come from the Black Lives Matter movement and ones that particularly came from the protests of the summer of 2020 and mm-hmm. one of the most widely shared images that came from the protest was of the Edward Colston statue being brought down by the Bristol protesters. And so we all know about that. And we've talked about that. But I'd like to look at these kind of symbolic moments through a wider lens. And I just wonder what significance they have throughout our civil rights history.
2: Mm. And that was definitely a watershed moment, right? And it's a really good question. I think, you know, when I think about the Edward Colston statue... I also think about the statue that was temporarily put up right after, right? Yeah. That was eventually taken down. But I've forgotten the name of the young black woman who was at the protest.
1: Yeah, I think it was Jen Reed. Yeah. yeah. Exactly,
2: right? And that is a dual image from that moment and you know that's kind of that's the, the the statue coming down was you know we didn't really have a say in that image being the proliferated image around that moment and what that became as a center of gravity was a kind of like here's the culture war here's the people tearing down our history you know the other side of the story was that it was actually being portrayed as you know travesty that people are tearing down uh our our British history in in quotation marks. But for for us, the image, I feel that we want to retain from that is Jen Reed. And it is all those people that were there with their fists raised, you know, doing the righteous thing. I think there's two different things that can be said about what these kind of moments signified, um, signify now and signified in the past. One is that these images, um, you know, a lot of people were talking about small acts and a lot of people are sharing the actual image of the moment when some of those uh, scenes in uh, mangrove happened for example yeah so like the image of um, barbara beast m- marching in T- hamlet's community or in with the bengali community Yeah, yeah. and those images you know the image of a uh, novelist the rapper holding the stop killing the mandem sign yes. images from the black people's day of action you know the biggest uh, black protest in british history after the new crossfire all of those images for me all of those symbols are, are telling a story right and i, I don't even need to go on, on on here you i'm sure all of you guys know that's you know we tell stories through symbols and i think those those symbols and those signifiers on one level they they kind of indicate moments of heightened kind of consciousness in our communities about the, the struggle against anti-racism and and, and against capitalism. And they, they're signifiers of, yeah, that kind of huge discontent. They show that there's kind of an ongoing resistance to the hostile, unequal environment that our communities have always endured in this country. There's one that that's one kind of straightforward thing that I think it symbolizes for me. But then the other thing that it symbolizes for me, and especially with Jen Reed, with that statue to use the coalstone image is that Stuart Hall, who is one of my, like, I, I, I go to him a lot. and I think he's an incredible cultural theorist and an asset to our, our country and our community in terms of thinking through culture and media and politics. He would say that like, we're not just passive consumers of the media, right? We're, we don't just, you know, consume the media and it's an unbreachable place. He's like, actually we do storytelling as well, you know, and we can take, for example, these, he talks about floating signifiers like the protester. It, it sounds really concrete as a word, but actually, it's really it can be quite fluid and vacuous. And some people can take the protester and use the image of the looter, and then try and combine the two, and suddenly the protester is the looter, right? We look at yeah. the riots, and I think what we did with Jen Reed and what we did, across, you know, with novelists, and what we what we're doing across these protests is that we're doing our own storytelling as well, and we're using these these moments of signifiers of our story, right? And it reminds me of like, I really go to um, the pig in the Black Panthers a lot and that that image and how it embodied that image with so so many different things. And it was able to tell a much larger story about imperialism and about history, about policing, about corrupt politicians, about it, you know, and we we do this all the time. In my book, I talk about the Art Workers Coalition in New York and they were like a collective of of artists that came together and they were doing stuff during the, the Vietnam, the anti war movement times and there's this story of like there's a really famous image that in you know it was like a kind of rallying image of that time of the anti war movements. and it was a now infamous image of the My Lai massacre which still not enough people know about which was when US soldiers entered this small village and they committed mass murder and rape and they they killed children they killed families they killed babies And there's this really famous interview where one of the soldiers, Paul Meadlow is being interviewed on CBS. And the guy says to him, and you guys killed men, women, and children. And he goes, yeah, men, women and children. And the interviewer goes and babies, you know, question mark. And then he goes and babies and those four words, they put that on that poster and the poster is called and babies. It's now like a kind of, you know, really renowned Mm -hmm. art image, but those four words and that image became like the story of that moment and that's us kind of recapturing things so i think that's that's for me like the more interesting thing about this signifies is that there there's a bit it's a bit of an open game you know we can we can actually come in and we can take things and memes are like the ultimate version of this right like we can take we can take the image and we can meme and we can make it ours and i think that's what's quite beautiful about what's happening with the blm movement and with other movements right now
1: you know you say that you know so many people don't know about these things and why do you think it's like deemed so radical to teach and understand these systems and and these parts of our history in schools
2: yeah i mean i think they're quite scared to be yeah, honest i think so too i think they're scared because we i mean we've always done this right we had supplementary schools when, and that was such that's such a big part of our civil rights history and, and and our like black history and black political struggle in this country. Such a big part of it was in the education and there was the black parents movement and there was so much work because there was you know, it was like segregation in schools here, if we're really honest about mm-hmm. it. And supplementary schools did such an important piece of work in our communities up and down the country to kind of level the playing field, but not just level the playing field, you know, kind of give young people A greater consciousness of and critical consciousness of the society they live in and the world in which they live in, and I think they they know that that's really where it begins, right? Like that's where kind of any powerful movement begins with education. And there's this uh, Sata Shakur quote that I kind of I'm gonna put it in the book, but too many quotes in the book I had to take out little quotes. But there was this there was this quote that was um. She says, no one is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. Nobody is going to teach you your true history, teach you your true heroes, if they know that the knowledge will help set you free. Yeah. I want to just throw in another quote. There's this, there's this quote, is I just go to it all the time, and it's Steve Biko, mm-hmm. And he says, there's nothing more powerful in the hands of the oppressor, nothing more powerful in the hands of the oppressor than the minds of the oppressed. Yes. And I think the inverse of that is there's nothing more powerful in the hands of the oppressed than the minds of the oppressed, right? So they're scared. And they and they can see that, you know, right now, the government has outlawed the teaching of victim narratives. And we all know what that means at this moment in time, right? They've outlawed that. So if you're a teacher, that's actually like, I want to I wanna bring more resources and I want to invite young activists and people to come in and talk to my students about this moment, this Black Lives Matter moment, this anti-race moment, this moment where we're talking about COVID-19, you know, the fact that we're four times more likely to die, one times more likely to be racist, four times more likely is just just open season, right? But if you want to do that, you could lose your job. In fact, you could probably maybe even go to prison. So I think that, one, they know this is happening. Lots of teachers are really dope. (laughs) Lots of teachers are not, but lots of teachers are really dope. And they're, they're trying to create a more ripe environment for their students to actually you know leave education with the tools to be able to navigate the world and they are scared they're definitely scared that what, what's happening is that we are raising our consciousness in our communities we are taking a handle over our lives and, and our communities and I think that just scares them
1: yeah and that's why on a, a practical level I think books like yours are so important so for children who aren't having access to a full and inclusive history and and social and uh, political education at school they can uh, access your book and and, and get this information and when we're learning about being actively anti-racist and disrupting power and we talk about so many ways that we can do this and I think people get a bit overwhelmed sometimes like there's so much that they can do especially if they're new to this journey and and I'm just thinking about your book now and if there's like one practical accessible tool that that people can use to to actively start their journey what would it be
2: oh, I think you're asking for a silver bullet mm.
1: I know it's not easy and it's a, a well-rounded like comprehensive approach that we have to take you know in all aspects of our lives I'd say it's probably read your book but you know that, that might be, that could be your answer <laughs> not <isn't> it <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think, I think, yeah, definitely read my
2: book. It's, it's a pocket book. It fits in your hand. It really is easy to carry around, and it's really accessible to read, if I may say so myself. And I think it gives us a lot of histories that we don't get to read often. You know, hearing what you just said, I think actually it's about taking a step. It's about getting active in whatever way you want to do that. It's about doing a thing, you know, and that might be okay. I'm going to start a reading group. Or that might be, you know what, I'm going to start a podcast. Or it might be, I'm going to find out about my local migrant solidarity group because what I'm reading about Windrush and what I'm reading about the hostile environment, it just sickens me. So I'm going to find a migrant solidarity group and I'm going to see how I can volunteer with them. Also take a leaf out of your book. I thought like taking an initiative, getting active, doing a thing, whether that's a podcast or a reading group, a lot of it boils down to the idea of political agency and that like growing up, or leaving school, I just, that, that, that didn't even, that wasn't even on my radar, the idea of having agency, or having political agency. I just, I think what, what we do a lot of the time is defer that to people who work in politics or who do politics. Um, and that's something that I talk about in the book. But I think it starts with that. It starts with like actually believing that in order to influence the political setup of society, you need to take agency. And that means you need to get active. You need to do a thing. And that might be like joining your local tenants union, or that might be like making your own curriculum and studying um, yourself. I think there's a deeper thing, which is um, the, one of my political heroes is is a guy called Fred Hampton. There's a film coming out about him next year, which is, you know, hopefully going to be good. It's a, it's a big blockbuster one, but, um, you know, Daniel Collier is in it. And I think it's going to be strong and it's called, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah, yeah. but fred hampton would always end rallies or discussions or meetings with this chant that he got people to do and he would make them say i am a revolutionary and i think you know like growing up and what we see around us like it's quite a cliched figure or a cliched idea that revolutionary you know like
1: <laughs> black Panther party that they can do anything
3: the they want to us we might not be back i might be in jail i might be anywhere but when i leave you can remember with the last words on my lips, that
0: I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that.
2: You're going to have to say that I am a politician. They've got, like, the beret on, and they've, they've got these fantastical ideas, and they're really utopian, and they kind of dis, disassociate them from general society. But the fact is that, you know, the places where our family comes from, like, in order for them to get independence, there had to be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of everyday revolutionaries, people in their communities who would describe themselves as part of the revolutionary movement. Mm. And that, you know, it seems a bit distant, but in reality, you need to take a step towards becoming a revolutionary. In what and And a part of that is you defining that for yourself, what that means, but a part of that is also picking up the baton of people from the past. You know, the people in Mangrove, they were revolutionaries. They understood that, In order to dismantle the systems, white supremacy, of patriarchy, of capitalism, of imperialism, we have to really get to work on, like first of all, thinking what comes next. Second of all, building a movement capable of bringing what comes next. And in order to do that, you have to be a revolutionary. So like I think the first concrete step in some ways is, and I think it comes back to what you're saying about education, because... You know a lot of the work of mainstream education is to kind of to frame us to trap us to kind of set us in a in a mold and in, in many ways put us on a conveyor belt to become the ideal worker in whatever setup yeah, and i think the converse to that is to become revolutionary in your mind it's to kind of break free of those constraints and that might be also how you conceive of gender and sexual norms it's thinking about heteronormativity is thinking about the family, the setup of the family is thinking about lots of things, you know, to be a revolutionary means a lot of things and it means challenging the kind of day-to-day dogmas that are just part of general society. So I think taking a leaf out of Fred Hampton's teachings, which of course he took, he took a leaf out of many people before in Franz Fanon and many others, you know, once you've done that, it's just you need to get active, you need to find a place, find a political home and you need to be doing stuff, you know. Making material improvements in your life and the life of your friends, family, and community.
1: Hey, hey, it's Lou here with a quick break. I want to share a show with you created by my editor, C.A. Davis. It's called A Lato Thought, which I highly recommend, and well, I'll just let him tell you about it himself.
0: My name is C.A. Davis. And this is a lot of thought, an immersive podcast that dismantles post racial myths about mixed race identities. Analyzing American history, law, and empire, each episode examines a contemporary idea about mixed raceness in order to reveal that race is the lie that became real. You see, in America, mixed-race people have been routinely exploited to both justify and challenge systems of white supremacy.
2: The hypo descent rule became the formalized definition of
0: hereditary slavery. But people are not mixed. History is mixed.
1: In the early 20th century, in Harlem, New Orleans, Black and South Asian peoples made lives together. The Creek Nation and the Cherokee
0: Nation join at Greenwood and Asher, right where the Tulsa riots occurred. And it's those historical processes of empire, war, immigration, economics, that mix us all up. The idea that mixed race people are somehow more biologically, genetically fit. I mean, that's just not true.
1: Some multiracial people say, yes, they are Black, but it doesn't encompass the fullness of, say, being raised by a Korean mom.
0: So tune in as academic research and histories are brought to rich, sonic life and woven together with the voices of intellectuals leading their fields. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter, both at LATO underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T and subscribe on your favorite podcast app today. My name is C.A. Davis, and I'll talk to you all soon.
1: We are kind of doing this work sort of privately amongst ourselves, you know, in our own lives, and no one is sort of... Watching what we 're doing or, or what we 're saying or what action we take, and even though some of the conversations or actions that we may be doing are uncomfortable we 're still in a comfortable position that we 're not public facing um, in the way that that you are and I think that some people don 't really understand that the the risks that are involved in that for being a public uh, figure of of the movement and can you just explain to the listeners who maybe don't understand about the work that you do?
2: I mean, I, I never really like—I I couldn't say that I kind of ever like sat down and was like, "I want to be a public figure." <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot. Of that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sometimes you just want to do something, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. part Same of that is that like you, yeah, yeah
1: exactly yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. right. Yeah. You wanted to do this. You never wanted to be a public figure. No. It was never about Lou Mensa. It's about actually the work the people you wanted to bring on in a lot of ways, um yeah. ironically, you know. But it kind of comes with the territory sometimes and also a lot of it was out of my control. Like when I first got involved in like grassroots activism and politics and different things, like journalists and different people picked up on stories or they came to a court case um and you know they were there and they kind of built a story and then one person has a story, another person goes, gets that story and develops it. And then you kind of it's out of your control mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But the other part of it and you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, I have a massive imposter syndrome. I'm always like, am I really, should I be doing, you know, should I be doing this event? Should I be going to this youth group? Should I be going to this, this talk, but it goes back to like the thing that we were speaking about in the beginning about representation, which is like, I can come as I am and I can speak from my experiences as I often do, you know, growing up, getting harassed by the police you know, being excluded from school or, you know, d- different things that happened to me. And I can talk about my family's experiences as immigrants. And I can talk about the places they come from as examples of like how the world is set up to still be an imperialist world. And and all of these things, I didn't, I didn't have that mirror. I didn't have that person really around me. Often the people who do politics, even in the left, wherever, a lot of them are like not really people I grew up around or saw or heard. Mm-hmm. so. In that way, I think it's also important that I'm about and I'm saying things and I'm talking about things from my experience, but I didn't really make a decision. And I think I think it is important for people to know that there is a lot of risks that come with this, for sure. People in the groups that I've been a part of, they've had their businesses destroyed. Mm-hmm. They've had people come for their family. I've had the, I've had people have talk about my family, talk about my sister, where she's doing an internship, putting that into the print media. You know, I've had them come to my house, harass my mother. On multiple occasions, come to my house, stake out, in my neighborhood, ask my neighbors what I'm up to, you know, that's, that's the kind of lighter version of it. The other more, you know, horrible side is that far-right fascist groups putting up addresses of some of our members, you know, trying to rally people down, you know, in far-right forums, people discussing you, discussing Mm -hmm. who you are, where you live, what you do. These people aren't messing around, you know, like Mm -hmm. they're terrorists, a lot of them. They go out and they shoot politicians. They've shot a politician in this country. They've, they've driven into crowds of people. they they're violent, a lot of these people. So there is a risk that comes with it. And I understand why a lot of people who do this kind of work are not keen to put their names out. Um, But in many ways, like I said, I didn't really have a choice. For example, this summer, like my name popped up in quite a few different papers and stuff like that. Um, But I was, I didn't do a single media interview. I didn't do uh, any talks in that period. I was really just behind the scenes trying to help people who are organizing protests and trying to do different things to support that, that moment. Um, but my name came up. So again, it's totally out of my control. Um, and I didn't respond to any journalists, you know, and a lot of them were asking for stuff. I didn't give them anything, but you know, there's a story that they want to tell. And sometimes I'm, you know, sometimes it's out of your control. I'm I'm an easy target because I, I didn't, you know, finish university because I have a criminal record, because I was like a rapper, because, you know, I'm, I'm a musician in that sense. It's like an easy thing, like this dropout, university dropout rapper guy. It's easy pickings for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think people understand that because that's the, not the work that, that they're doing. And that's why I wanted to give you the space to help them understand what the environment can be like for you. And there's, so much opposition sometimes to the ideas that we're sharing, you know, and um, it's very difficult to process sometimes when, you know, the message is very simple. You know, your focus is on equality and equal human rights. Like, it's not that difficult. So their opposition is a very weak position that they're in. So how do you manage to stay strong?
2: I don't think it can be understated And it's always important to learn about, and I put this in the book, like to what extent state surveillance and sabotage affects political movements and especially uh, political movements in the black community. Like right now, there is a hearing, there is uh, an investigation, there's a trial going on about spy cops. And a lot of what is surfacing, as has surfaced before, is that there's been thousands of thousands of campaigns and activist groups in this country that have been surveyed and sabotaged by the government over the last um, couple of decades. And many of them, a disproportionate amount of them are family justice campaigns, right? People who were killed in police custody in this country. You know, as we, as we found out about the Stephen Lawrence family being spied on by, by the police. So that's kind of a permanent backdrop of like how you're treated. And, and the more of a public profile you are, the more this is the case. And that's kind of what's come out in these trials that are taking place. But you know, at the same time as these trials are taking place, There is a bill going through government right now, and it's right now it's in the House of Lords. It's called the C-H-I-S bill, the Covert Human Intelligence Sources bill, which is kind of, you know, it is what jurisdiction do covert human intelligence sources, spies, have? And many uh, pressure groups, for example, like the Pat Finnegan Society. Pat Finnegan was an Irish lawyer who was killed uh, in his field of work.
1: in Belfast sat at his kitchen table to have dinner with his wife and three children. As they ate, two gunmen burst through the door. They entered the room and shot Mr. Finnegan 14 times. He was killed by a loyalist paramilitary group that then, as the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, admitted in 2011, was acting in complicity with British security services. Far from stopping Mr. Finnegan's murder, the Prime Minister described, and I quote, the shocking levels of state collusion in Mr. Finnegan's murder. In 2010, it came to light that for 40 years, Brin's police had run covert operations spying on thousands of civilians.
2: And the, the British government apologised because actually it was through their surveillance programmes and through the paramilitaries that he was killed. So th- this society is saying, hey, this bill, you need to put some strong oversight on what they can and can't do, these spies. For example, you should probably say that they can't rape, kill or torture people, as they did in, in America and Canada when they put a similar bill through. They didn't put this in the bill. And it's kicked up a lot of fuss in, in in the media and people are like, so you're effectively saying that um, spies that have been used, prolifically been used uh, to spy on, you know, civil society groups and activist groups and campaign groups, there's no law that they can't break. And the response is, well, yeah, there's no law that they can't break. So that's kind of like, that's a, that's... A, that's the backdrop and so there's always a danger, right? And I and I really understand why a lot of people don't want to be public facing and don't want to be out there because it's it's a dangerous environment in which this work
1: happens. That's very sobering to hear that. Mm-hmm. And I hope that makes it clear to some people listening what this is actually about. It's not just about people on talking on social media or writing books. This is about how lives are affected in a real way people have been asking about the donations that came through from the summer and what i think about is the imbalance in which the uh, activists themselves um, are called out for the work they do and maybe the government and you know all this the really worrying things that are going on that you've just talked about you know people don't uh, <laughs> challenge that in any way yeah. shape or form it's because it's easy just to write you know a message on social media and and, and that actually you're being challenging or provocative but I'm just really interested to know where people can go to find out uh, where the funds are being held and what will happen with the donations um, that people gave during last summer.
2: I'm a member of Mm. uh, BLM UK, I'm not a leader, I'm not like a principal person and I'm not actually in a position to be able to make any kind of statement about any processes in the group. However, the organisation has put out multiple statements saying this is what we're going to be doing with it. We're going to be grant making. We're going to be giving out funds. We're going to be set up as a kind of this kind of organisation, which means that we're going to be operating like this. You know, it's a big step up to go from a grassroots group, relatively unfunded, largely voluntary, mm-hmm. um, to a million-pound organisation you're no longer a grassroots group then you have a lot of responsibilities you need to you need to set up as a legal entity and you need to do that in a very responsible way you need to work with lawyers and accountants you need to really figure out and at the same time you've got eyes on you you know you've got eyes on you from all directions you know government ministers are up in government talking about our organization all the time and in so there's eyes on us and then there's eyes on us from the community and i'm really sympathetic with the eyes on us from our community because Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, money is a dangerous thing. It comes in and it can disrupt. Um, A small organization getting a lot of money is normally a very catastrophic thing. Mm. And I also understand that people are like, this is our money. I think that's slightly disingenuous. And I think, you know, 37,000 people donated to that fundraiser. Mm. Hundreds of people are upset, but tens of thousands of people are trusting of the organization that they gave to that they're going to do the right thing mm-hmm. and periodically on the fundraiser there has been periodic updates about what's going to happen and you know from my perspective as someone who speaks to people in the group and is involved in the stuff in the group every person in there is doing all they can to get message out to get things moving to get progress to happen right everybody in the group is like how can we get this to our community and raise like power and and possibility in our community like mm-hmm. that's The priority all the time. Mm. So I'd say go, go to the organization, follow the updates. And if you have questions, put it to the organization and tweet, if you want to tweet at the organization, but don't expect to get a response, write an email and ask about, you know, I'm actually curious what's going to happen. What's the timeline? What's the oversight on this? If you want to do that, do that, you know, do as you would normally do scrutinize an organization as, as you would scrutinize any organization, really. you know,
0: um,
2: with all the, all the due diligence that needs to happen. Everything that needs to happen is happening. And, you know, the flip side of that is that it's very, very exciting yeah. because there hasn't been an organisation like this, resource like this, with the priorities like this for a long time. And I think we should be excited for what the possibilities are.
1: Brilliant. And let's talk about that. I want to talk about the light that you see on this road that we're that we're on.
2: I mean, like part of doing this and being around campaigners all across the country in conversation with people in their workplace, and every time I do talks like this or are doing like strategy work with different groups, the the flip side to the kind of horrific situation that we find ourselves in, in housing and with police and, you know, in all the different sectors is that there's people doing phenomenal work and people are like, you know, like red to go, you know, what's happening in terms of the affront on our communities from the mishandling of the pandemic and the cronyism at the top, the mirror image of that is people are really, really getting upset and getting active and, that's a constant source of inspiration for me. And like what happened in Nigeria, what's happening in Guatemala, what's happened in Chile, what's happening like in Bolivia, what happened in Bolivia, what's happening like across the world is people are not taking it anymore. People are thinking about long-term strategy and how we build power in our communities. And recently I was um, part of like an organizer training in uh, like a tenants union. And it was dozens of people from across the city who do just, you know, really amazing work in their communities. And they're all here. We're all here regularly thinking about how do we do this properly over the long term? How do we build power in our communities? And for me, like when people are asking those, asking the right questions and coming together and brainstorming and like making plans, that for me is like, you know, if the arc of truth bends towards justice and we need to travel on that, that's the traveling. That's the stuff that I'm like, we're getting there. But, you know, I'm sometimes overly optimistic. And I remember like I, in the book, I was like, I had a chapter title that was like, we will win. And I really love that phrase. And, and they use it a lot in the Black Lives Matter movement in the States. And my mate came and he was like, I, you know, he, he tempered it a bit. He was like, you know, that's true. That, that's true in some ways. But what about we can win? Because we can win is like, actually, we can win if we get active. And as I look around me, as I look at how we're responding to the crises that we face, climate change, COVID, people are taking steps and they're taking serious steps. And therefore, for me, it's like, it's not uh, like a matter of like, if, but when, you know? And I hope that the when is in time, you know, that we don't, you know, it's not two minutes to midnight that we actually manage to really get back people power. But I think it's when, and I think if you ask me, soon, inshallah, soon. You know, that change is going to happen. But I see light on the road for sure.
1: And now for part two with George Osai from the communications team at the Photographers Gallery in London. George talks about the importance of telling our own stories through photography, how galleries need to change their internal structures following the protests, and the photographers that he looks to for inspiration. You work at the Photographers Gallery at the moment, and obviously, you were working there during the Black Lives Matter uprisings in the summer of 2020. I wondered if you saw any changes in the way that either internally or the communications that were being sent out from the gallery changed as events unfolded.
3: It definitely, definitely encouraged and forced more conversations, more uncomfortable conversations. Looking at our bias, looking at our staff, looking at you know any kind of um, unconscious bias that we may have, and the need to address it. I mean, the communications and press team, and honestly, just seeing all these marches, these protests, these... I'm even getting upset thinking about it, seeing all these crazy images of police brutality across the world in America, in this country, so many different places, and then still having to look after the the social media. It put me in such a weird headspace. I honestly... I I was so conflicted. I didn't want to work. I didn't want to be on social media. I can say that it it became part of our, our daily meetings, our daily communications... We even started looking at our anti-racist policy, our EDI policy, and different ways that um, we can unpack what it is that we do and how we as the gallery, we have a a responsibility to help tell stories and also to help unpack, to debunk, to um, uh, unlearn different things that photography has taught us. So I do genuinely feel a lot of platforms are being performative. And for example, the, the whole Black Square movement, I know there are so many different platforms that put up that Black Square but then the next week, if you look at their feed again, absolutely nothing to do with what was going on, nothing to do with Black Lives Matter, nothing to do with what they're actively doing to address the things that are happening. A lot of platforms, it just felt really performative and they just wanted to be part of the conversation, but not to actually have the, t- the tough conversations as well. I think it's called The White Pube on Twitter and they challenged so many different arts and media gallery houses saying this is the representation of your staff. You've got X amount of Black or Asian or minority ethnic people in working in, in your institution, or this is the amount of people that you've represented from this background. They're really calling them out, and I think it's about time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Big big up to uh, Gab and Zarina from The White Pube. They've actually been guests on this show in, in a previous season. Mm. They have a really powerful voice and they're really working on behalf of all of us. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, we love them. On a high note, in terms of a documentary or street photographer whose work that you admire, they might be new to the scene or they might have been working in photography for a while, whose work are you particularly enjoying at the moment in terms of documentary
3: oh okay there's this artist called zun li i saw his um his photo series about father figures it is such a poignant and striking series and it's so beautiful in black and white and just how he documents stories and people and you know the struggles but also at the same time the successes and the beauty and the vulnerability of, of black males. And another photographer I'd recommend is my boy Corey Powell. He created this photo series and film called Rage in collaboration with an artist called Jesse, Jesse Cranston. And it explores masculinity and vulnerability through the lens of a black man and how often we're, we're so afraid to address the rage that we have. And I think that closely links to you know the protests and, and the BLM marches and demonstrations that was happening earlier this year. And it just felt like a collective black frustration and exhaustion. And I think it's not only topical, but it speaks of what we're going through right now. Do you remember this picture of this, I've forgotten the man's name. He's a black man carrying a white protester.
1: Absolutely, Patrick Hutchinson.
3: Patrick Hutchinson, yeah. I'm so conflicted about that picture.
1: You're not the only one.
3: So conflicted. Because the Christian side of me is thinking, okay, here we are in a situation Turning the other cheek, you know, showing love to those who hate you. But then here I am. I'm very angry as a black man. And I'm very angry that, <sighs> wow, I didn't even know I had these emotions in me. How do you feel about that, picture?
1: Well, that's really interesting because I'm actually going to be spending a whole episode talking about it. Okay. Because <laughs> it has brought up so many feelings in so many people hmm. the problem with the image for me was was not what was happening in it you know patrick did the right thing hmm. the problem that i had with it was the conversations that were coming from mainly the white mainstream press when they saw that image and what it did was was say look this is a black man basically representing the whole black community Mm. and he can rise above everything that is happening so therefore why can't you the issue that I had with it was is that they called the person that he was carrying a counter-protester and I'm thinking hang on a minute that makes me hugely uncomfortable and also angry. If we cannot name what is actually happening, Mm -hmm. then how are these conversations going to move forward? You're not a counter-protester if you're there to try and derail... A Black Lives Matter protest. You are Mm. saying that you are disagreeing with people Mm. asking for equality and human rights. Mm. We all know what you are, but why aren't we allowed to name you? Whereas we are being named and labelled all the time, and I just don't like the way that the media was like, "Well, yes, this is how we should all behave." Well, that's basically saying we we can't be angry, exactly. We can't be upset, and in fact, we have every right to be all of those things.
3: I was just annoyed that they they wanted to make this picture or this moment defining moment of everything that's going on this year so many platforms are showcasing or putting the work of white photographers of a black struggle and again I'm not comfortable with that so even my capacity at the gallery when I'm, I'm doing the social medias I was very conscious of the fact that I want more black photographers to showcase their work not only for this the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests but in general before this lockdown I was working on a, a video series or online series that has Ghanaian parents and their children sitting down and having honest conversations with themselves. And the reason why it started many years ago, I watched um, Black is the New Black by Simon Frederick. I was so inspired by just seeing all these, you know, black faces and hearing their stories and, you know, them navigating through being black and being, being British as well. So speaking to my mom, speaking to my dad, hearing about their experiences, about coming from Ghana, having to... Try and settle in, having to learn the culture, but also still staying true to their culture. Um, It just really inspired me to speak to more Ghanaians and speak to more aunties and uncles. And you know, what are their thoughts of of these protests? What are their thoughts of these marches? What are their dreams and their aspirations that they have or that they had for their children?
1: I can't wait to see how that turns out, George. And listen, if you ever need any more contacts, you know, my family's Ghanaians,
3: So, come on.
1: I want to round up with a quick thought on this conversation. What's striking about talking to Joshua is that while many of us engage in activism in different ways, not many of us are so driven to have to endure police surveillance in the way that Joshua has described. It's extraordinary that this should be the case in 2021, because to be an activist is is not to be a criminal. And I left my conversation with George contemplating the reactionary nature of our response to the protests. And the effect that that has on our ability to process what happened. It reminded me to recognise how much we are carrying. The conversations at the time brought up so much about the inequalities we experience in all areas of our lives. Obviously regarding police brutality, but also the inequalities in healthcare, education and in our workplaces. And also, we were still expected to be as present as we always were in our relationships and our friendships and in our caring duties. We've been expected to be as productive as we were before the protests and before the pandemic. But the loads we are carrying have been heavy, so I hope in some way that the conversations this season support you in processing everything that you witnessed and experienced last summer. If you enjoyed this show, please support the work by subscribing via whatever app you listen to your podcasts on. And consider becoming a Shade patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Shade podcast. Shade is produced and hosted by me, Lou Menser, and the music is created for Shade by legendary composer Brian Jackson. Half of the power duo Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Thanks to Content is Queen for assistant editing and to C.A. Davis for editing, mixing and sound design. Thanks for listening. See you next time.